Emerald podcast series. Research that makes a difference. Hello, I'm Rebecca Torr and welcome to the Emerald podcast series. Patient-centred care is a fundamental health and social care policy within the UK National Health Service and other healthcare organisations around the world. It was a medical approach that came to its own in the 1980s, replacing the traditional paternalistic medical approaches that had become problematic. But what is patient-centred care? And is it as effective as we think it is in delivering positive health outcomes? To discuss these issues, I'm joined by two professors with an incredible wealth of knowledge in this space. They are Professor Alison Pilnick, Professor of Language, Medicine and Society in the Faculty of Social Sciences at the University of Nottingham, and Professor Ruth Parry, Professor of Human Communication and Interaction at Loughborough University. As part of the discussions, Alison will draw on the insights from her new book entitled Reconsidering Patient-Centred Care Between Autonomy and Abandonment. I'm Alison Pilnick. I am Professor of Language, Medicine and Society in the School of Sociology and Social Policy at the University of Nottingham. And my working life began as a pharmacist and I initially became interested in communication in healthcare as a practitioner. But then for the last 25 years or so, I've been researching communication across a whole range of healthcare settings, mostly using the method of conversation analysis. I first have worked in settings in the UK and beyond, um, funded by a range of funders. But in those settings, I've been interested in, in some core practices that recur pretty much wherever healthcare gets delivered. So things like advice giving, things like communicating risks, things like decision making. And then I'm also interested in, in what happens where one party has a condition that might affect their communication. So something like dementia, for example. And more recently, I'm really interested in communicating where parties don't share a first language and, and what that does to, to healthcare consultations and, and how they unfold. But I suppose whatever setting I'm researching in, what I'm interested in is, is using social science methods to try and produce practice and policy relevant research findings. And that always includes developing training resources for practitioners. Fantastic. Oh, it's really interesting in such a broad range of subjects and interests. Thank you. Um, and Ruth, would you describe sort of your interests and, and introduce yourself, your current um, position? Of course. Um, so I'm Ruth Parry. I'm an Emeritus Professor of Human Communication and Interaction at Loughborough University. In some ways, Alison and I have quite a bit of shared background. So I used to be an NHS physiotherapist. That was the first part of my career. And um, I uh, ended up doing a PhD with Alison and another colleague, uh, Robert Dingwall, um, looking at communication in physiotherapy. In doing the PhD with Robert and Alison, I got very interested in the same kind of research approach that Alison uses, uh, which is called conversation analysis. And I know that we'll be talking a bit about that later on. And um, my particular focus has tended to be sensitive and difficult conversations between practitioners and patients. Um, I think when I was a practitioner, I wasn't always particularly good at those and uh, it became an increasing interest for me to actually work on, and like Alice and I do work on projects that are 
intended as as part of them to provide or develop resources for training and for guidance and policy. Since uh, 2010, I've worked specifically in palliative and end-of-life care and focusing on when and how people manage to talk about particularly sensitive and difficult topics like prognosis and end-of-life. Um, and that's that's still a, a key area of, of my work now. Wonderful, thank you. Well, I'm absolutely delighted to have you both here on the podcast. As you know, the podcast is focusing on a research project on patient-centred care and Alison's new book, Reconsidering Patient-Centred Care Between Autonomy and Abandonment. As a starting point, could you explain what we mean by the term patient-centred care? I can try. Uh, I mean, I think that would be really easy, but it's actually surprisingly difficult. And it, and the reason it's surprisingly difficult to, to give you any sort of widely accepted definition of patient-centred care is because there isn't a single agreed definition. And, and that's something that really surprised me when I came to this area. You know, you would think, given the ubiquity of this term in, in policy and practice, that that there would be some clear statement about what this means. So there isn't any kind of single agreed definition. What does exist are a huge number of measurement tools and, and models. The UK charity, the Health Foundation, says that there are more than 160 of them that are commonly used. And I think that gives you some idea that if there are more than 160 things in common use, they can't all be measuring the same thing because otherwise they'd just be duplication. Uh, you also have the problem that sometimes definitions of patient-centred care are imposed a priori, so people start their work with the definition. Sometimes they emerge from the work that people do. But I guess if you're asking me to identify key common principles, what all these tools and approaches and models tend to do is emphasise the importance of a transfer of control from doctor or the healthcare professional to patient. So a patient-centred approach is, is conceptualised as, as giving back this control to the patient and, and very often with a, with a really strong emphasis on, on patient choice and patient autonomy. But what I'd say about that as well is that what, what makes it even more confusing is that the term patient-centred sometimes gets used interchangeably with other terms. So very often person-centred care, but sometimes other things too, like individualised care or, or personalised care. And, and one of the things that I've tried to do in the book is, is talk about the different roots of those terms and, and why I think it's problematic that they get used interchangeably in that way. I think you're compl- it's so interesting you're saying about the, the different um, definitions. And I think, you know, just researching a little bit about this work, um, I, you know, person-centred care, it would never have occurred to me that that was anything different than the patient-centred care. So it must be quite confusing for people that are working in in the sector to understand what definition they're they're working under and what that means for their role so I can see you know why it was important for you to to define that and to discuss you know sort of all those different areas coming together obviously you've done a project on um, reconsidering patient-centered care and it's I, I was just quite interested in sort of why you wanted to do this this project and and what was the need for it and what you were hoping to achieve really so for about 25 years as i've said i've, I've been working on projects looking at communication in, in healthcare across a range of settings so that that started with my own phd but all of those projects were funded to look at specific aspects of communication and along the way 
I began noticing and, and connecting examples of the ways in which an attempt to practice patient-centred care was was sometimes problematic in these places. But I knew that I was never going to have time to look at this systematically in the gaps between other projects and, and teaching and, and all the other things that, that we do. And so I was able, first of all, to, to do a very small bit of work with the support of the Academy of Medical Sciences and their, their flyer program. And then to use that very small bit of work to develop a proposal for the British Academy Senior Research Fellowship Scheme. So I was lucky enough to get that funded. And what that did was give me the space to, to go back to my whole corpus of 25 years worth of data to try and reanalyze it with that patient-centered care lens. Must have been absolutely amazing to be able to focus on a project that you've really wanted to get under the skin of for such a long time and weren't able to. So um, what did you, during that experience then of, of this project, what did you find out? What were the sort of main outcomes or implications of, of that work? Yeah, so I think there were a few things. So I mean, you know, the, the first and, and the most fundamental thing is is the thing that I, I think I've already said, that, that despite absolute ubiquity across the NHS, but, you know, policy, service delivery and, and beyond, there's there's not that much of an evidence base for patient-centred care. So what it really rests on is a moral position that seems to make intuitive sense rather than any kind of empirical evidence that it has a positive impact on people's health. So if you look at studies in isolation, you can find individual studies which report positive impacts. But if you look at systematic reviews, which collect those interventions and those studies together, they show a pretty mixed picture. So what I found was that research repeatedly fails to show a clear link between the adoption of patient sense of care in a setting and any kind of improvement in health outcomes. What studies do sometimes show is an increase in patient satisfaction where patient sense of care is practiced, but even that's not universal. So you've kind of got this situation where where it's not making people's health better, it's making some people feel better about the service that's delivered, but but not by any means all of them. And the only really consistent finding that, that comes out of, of these reviews is that training practitioners in a patient-centred care intervention increases the practice of patient-centred care as measured by that particular intervention. But given how many different interventions there are and the fact that they're not all measuring the same thing, it seems to me that that's not a terribly helpful circularity. And so then you're left thinking, well, well, despite the fact that, that patient-centred care doesn't seem to work to improve health, why does this problem usually get framed in a way that that is really in terms of professional failings, that patient-centred care would work if only healthcare professionals were, were more or somehow better trained in it? So I suppose that was my first finding. The second thing that you then ask yourself is, is once you've established that something doesn't work in the way it was intended, the next obvious question is, well, why doesn't it work? You know, what, why is it not having this impact on, on health outcomes? And that comes back again to what I've said about patient-centred care being grounded in a moral position rather, rather than empirical evidence. Because if you examine real-life healthcare interactions, as I did, what you find is that there isn't generally this kind of 
grand struggle for control that patient-centred care assumes. So the language of of patient autonomy and patient choice that patient-centred care uses, it really serves to obscure the way that that choice and control are actually negotiated and, and constructed by healthcare professionals and patients together based on the way that they share their professional and personal expertise. So, you know, in real life, control and choice are discrete properties that can only rest with one person or or another person. And if you conceptualise them like that, if you conceptualise choice and control as resting solely with patients or as things that should rest solely with patients, then there's no longer any clear role for medical expertise in healthcare decision making. So that, you know, the things that professionals know by virtues of being professionals there's no obvious place for those in the consultation. And what I find that the ultimate consequence of that is, is, is either in practices of patient affirmation. So you go along with patients' views about the care that they feel that they might want. But the risk of that is that you're offering care or ultimately providing care that doesn't meet care standards. Or it's in patients feeling abandoned because medical decisions get framed as private matters, private decisions that they have to make on their own, depending on how they feel about different options. And I think if you understand those two things, then you begin to understand why patient-centred care doesn't result in the improved health outcomes that you might imagine it would result in. It's it's very interesting, isn't it? Because you would have thought that, you know, this has been going on for decades this type of approach and you'd think well it must be working it must be making a difference to people's health it must be it's such an an eye-opener to find out that actually it's not about that at all it's where is that that space for what the practitioner has to say the experts have to say and what priority is that given I guess um it's a huge contribution to have this knowledge available and obviously you've gone on now to publish this work in a book and I'm just quite interested to find out a little bit more about what's in the book and and why you felt now was the right time to publish this book after all that time. Yeah, so so, I mean, the book was really a way of pulling together all of this work to disseminate it. And I wanted to write a book because I wanted to be able to show the broad range of material that I was drawing on in this analysis and that the problems that I was identifying weren't limited to one or two settings. So, you know, I I needed the kind of space to be able to make that intellectual argument and to show the evidence that that underpins it. In answer to why now, I I suppose now felt like the right time for a variety of reasons. So, as I've said, patient centered care has become ever more ubiquitous in healthcare policy and practice over recent years but still in the absence of of any real evidence for for its impact. And when I started collecting the examples that I used in the book years ago, I naively assumed that this wasn't how healthcare policy works. I kind of thought, well, you know, if if this is what's happening, there there must be evidence that, that underpins it. But the second thing is that I think the global healthcare context over the last few years is that it's a reason to give us all pause to think about the emphasis that modern Western society places on individual choice and autonomy. So Anne-Marie Marl, who's a, who's a philosopher who's, and whose brilliant work I draw on in the book, says that choice is the pivotal liberal principle that in neoliberal terms, citizens are defined by the ability to control their own bodies. 
And I think we see how that plays out in modern life in, in a variety of ways. But I think it's particularly problematic when you apply it to healthcare because the problem is that if you're in need of healthcare for whatever reason, you're not entirely free because there will be consequences if you're left entirely alone. And I think in many ways, the COVID pandemic is a perfect illustration of, of another thing that Mon said, although she was writing pre-COVID. She says, microbes and liberalism don't go well together. And if we think about responses to the COVID pandemic, that really shows us how it's often not sensible to conceptualise healthcare choices as individual choices. And it also shows us how even if we frame things within a rhetoric of choice, not all choices are really seen as equal. And I'm sure you've got things to say about that, Ruth. Well, I, I guess as I've been listening to you, one of the things I've been thinking about and with that lovely quote about my credits as well is um, I think it's some work that isn't mentioned within the book specifically, but some people in our field, um, particularly somebody called um, Dargo Pal and, and colleagues have looked, for instance, at parents taking babies for vaccinations with all uh, the data recorded in America, so it's shots in America. And um, what uh, the study found was that the more that the practitioner gave space for the parent to discuss or challenge or ask questions about vaccination, then the more satisfied the parent was sort of post-consultation, but the consultations took longer and there was a slight difference in whether the baby actually did end up being vaccinated or not. And certainly there was a significant difference in terms of how much pushback from parents against having the vaccination was. Whereas if the practitioner started as, okay, great, you brought her for her vaccines today, and it all just went much more rapidly, smoothly. Now, you can kind of see the conflict there between perhaps feeling more satisfied, but with the enormous consequences that we know, uh, you know, and are playing out uh, in, in our society of not vaccinating babies. And so these things work through in very, very practical terms. And that's just a rather neat example. And, um, you know, I know you have some other examples of that kind of problem in the book. But, um, yeah, as you said, the pandemic has made it very very clear. I mean, this is a completely different perspective and on what we, how we talk about life generally now, because everything's more sort of about putting people in control of their lives and, you know, making the decisions and stuff. But in the end, what is the outcome everyone wants? What is the goal of, of having that healthcare? Why are you going to the doctor surgery if, if you know the answers already? I mean, you're going there for a reason. So it's like very different perspective. And I think it's really great to hear research that you know, we backed up with all these examples as well, where it hasn't played out um, according to what you might think. So even though maybe you think logically, oh, yes, you know, patients, okay, they're more satisfied. And that's a great outcome in itself. But ultimately, they're not going to be satisfied if they're still dealing with the consequences, like in the vaccine case, the consequences of what happens if your child does develop one of those illnesses, and you know, and the consequences to those illnesses. So it is really, it's a completely different perspective. And in the book, you examine why a values-driven healthcare policy could be contentious in practice. 
And I just wondered if you could elaborate on this, explaining why this might be the case. And I know, Ruth, you've, you've got a few things you would like to say on this in terms of your field, in the research fields that you're working in. And I think it's really great to have those practical examples as well, just to sort of bring it to life. And so um, our audience can sort of have a different perspective on it too. Yeah, so I, I think that's a really interesting question because I think the issue is actually that it isn't at all contentious, but that it's problematic. So, you know, I've said that, that patient-centred care derives from a moral position, the assumed moral rightness that, that you give control to the patient. And, and that's part of a broader shift to values-based policy, which is it's largely arisen as a response to successive healthcare scandals. So things like the, the Francis inquiry into, into North Staff's hospitals, which, which have investigated how unquestionably appalling cultures and practices have, have come to develop in, in particular organisations or settings. And the response to that has been to suggest that if only practice was underpinned by moral values, such as compassion or dignity, then those kind of scandals wouldn't occur. But I think the problem then becomes one where, because of the moral infallibility that's, that's assumed by practitioners of patient-centred care, it becomes impossible even to discuss it. So I can't tell you how many times I've tried to have this conversation with people who say, oh, we want to go back to the old days, the bad old days then, or oh, so you believe that doctor knows best. When in the first place, that's not what I'm arguing at all. And in the second place, I don't think those are simple binary choices and I don't think it does any favour to pretend us or to pretend that they are. So I suppose what I think the problem is, is that I don't think it's healthy for any kind of policy to be seen as beyond discussion in that way. And I think that values-based policies are particularly prone to being seen as, as beyond discussion. But then I think there are other problems in that, in that moral values aren't necessarily stable and also that they can and do conflict dependent on context, which I guess takes us back to COVID again and the way in which autonomy had to be balanced with the collective good. And also that, that while moral values make really good policy sound bites, they're actually pretty difficult for practitioners to enact in practice because they lack specificity. So we already know that there's no agreement over what patient-centred care actually constitutes in practice. But you could ask the same questions about, about compassion or dignity. You know, what, what do they look like on the ground in healthcare interactions? And I know that's something that you've been really interested in, Ruth. It is. I think things like compassion, empathy, dignity uh, are in some ways rather like patient-centred care itself in that on the surface, it sounds, yeah, that only a moral good and so on. But actually understanding or actually putting it into practice in a concrete way is very difficult. It doesn't just naturally flow from just say, well, be more, be, listen empathically or, you know, treat people with compassion. And there are even times when there can be sort of conflicts between different ways of treating somebody with dignity or with compassion or even, um, I'm going to slightly shift examples, but even in things like ensuring that patients understand and that you're clear with them and so on. So 
an example from my own area of interest is another kind of idea about how or policy of how to be compassionate and sure that patients really understand their situation is the idea and current kind of really strong debate in practitioner fields, especially in palliative care, around the fact that practitioners say or are told they should say you are dying or your relative will die shortly, those kinds of things. So using the D word is sometimes talked about in oncology, using the C word. Now, it sounds morally the right thing to do. And logically, you would think, yes, that's the right thing to do because then people will understand. But in studies that have actually recorded very experienced practitioners, quite often the patients are pretty experienced themselves in palliative care. And if you look at how they talk about end of life and dying and so on, it's very, very rare that people use the D word, whether that's patients or relatives or doctors, even when somebody is very clearly at the very end of their lives. And so then that makes us wonder, well, why? Why is there this policy that seems, and guidance that seems morally compelling and makes logical sense? Why don't practitioners do it? It can be a source of guilt, or as Alison was talking about earlier on, a source of judgment that this practitioner is, needs training and is, is uh, practicing badly because they don't use those words necessarily. Well, of course, the, the, the reason why is that directly referring to my own death, or if, I, if the practitioner ref directly referring to my own death, can be really distressing. It's, it's, we sort of, we can know it, but actually verbalizing these things can, can cause such emotional distress that it can then derail whatever the consultation is doing. For instance, we might be talking about if I wanted a relative to be with me or about my pain symptoms and the management of those. But, you know, maybe somebody's used that D word in a very brusque, blunt, you know, or it, I find it brusque and blunt. So that's why people generally don't actually apply this policy and are often made to feel guilty when they don't do so as well. And one of the strengths, I think, of the field that both Alison and I work in is that one can then look, well, what do people actually do? Yeah. And one of the things that I think is very important in our field is that when we analyse what people actually do in real life, we almost go in with an assumption that there are reasons and there will be some good reasons for, for instance, not using the D word. And sometimes, often, we can actually work out those good reasons through looking at how interactions actually work. And then after that, we can see how some people come up with, some practitioners or patients come up with rather neat and clever ways of getting around some of the problems. So to sort of finish my little story of this use the D word policy, when we look closely, what some practitioners and many patients and relatives do is that they'll refer somewhat indirectly to death and dying or the end of their lives or their prognosis, but where it's still indirect, but it's not ambiguous. So for instance, in English, passed away, you know, is uh, we all know what that means or um, a medical colleague of mine, she, she talks about 
may not survive, those kinds of things. So there's just that little step back from the very blunt terminology. Now, what we know, though, is that sometimes people are so indirect or are indirect in an ambiguous manner. So saying, I don't know if I'll be here tomorrow, which uh, I've got a little bit of recording where a patient says that to a practitioner. Now, it's not clear whether the patient means here at the hospice or whether I'm going to be dead tomorrow, as it were. So one of the neat things that we were able or we are able to do from looking at those different ways of handling this kind of problem, we can then produce guidance that's that's more fitted to how real life works. So we might say, if I was being really simplistic with guidance, don't necessarily feel you should use the D word <laughs> because of all the problems with it. But when being indirect, do it in a non-ambiguous way. I, th- I mean, it's it's really interesting. And when you were speaking there, uh, Ruth, just about it's so emotive. And I think anyone that's been in that situation where you've had a relative that is going to die and to hear that it's an honest thing, but it's a very blunt thing. And in, in practice, interesting that, you know, what looks good on paper, what sounds great in a policy when it's rolled out is is quite different. And as a, you know, a patient on the other end, you know, you really do appreciate it when there is tact around using those kinds of words and, and not everyone wants to hear it so um, blatantly. And I think it's it's wonderful that there are like people like yourself that are doing research in this area and that actually interrogate the practical application of policies and and what's recommended because you know if we're talking about sort of what the outcome what's what's the last part of that person's life or or their families that have to deal with it it is really important that's what you remember isn't it and that's what stays with you I think in in terms of experiences um and I mean I can think of you know recent ones from from my own personal point of view um and just you know you're very grateful for those experts and they really are experts that have been doing it for so long that they really understand that in practice that doesn't always play out so it's very interesting and I'd like to move on to sort of um, conversation and analysis because I know you mentioned quite a lot about that in the book and I'd just like to understand sort of how it can be helpful in understanding healthcare interactions. Yeah so I I, mean, I think I think Ruth and I could could write a really big book about this yeah, and, and maybe one day we will picking up on some of the things that Reese just said, that you know, the, the most important thing for me and the most useful thing about conversation analysis as a method is that it shows you how healthcare interaction actually works in practice as opposed to how people think it works or how people think it should work. So if you like, it's, it's, it's an incredibly useful way of, of looking at that policy practice gap. It's also at the opposite end of the spectrum. You know, it's as far away as you can get from the sort of top-down values-based development of policy. So it very much brackets those values and opinions and it's able to look at and show instead what what works on the ground and and why it works. And something Ruth and I talk about all the time is is the fact that people rarely think about the fact that, that most healthcare policies actually have to be talked into being. So where healthcare policies happen is in the consultations or in the interactions between healthcare professionals and their clients, whether that's in the consulting room, on the ward, over the phone or or wherever else it might be. And so, as Ruth has said, by looking at that talk, you can see where difficulties in policy implementation arise and you can see why. 
And what that often points to is the fact that healthcare policies are asking staff to do things which are incredibly difficult interactionally. You know, they, they might be a good idea in theory, but they don't work interactionally. And I think from my data and my research, non-directiveness is a great example of that. So, so non-directiveness is a policy that's pursued across a range of genetic medicine services as part of a patient-centered care ethos. But what you see when people try and practice this is that it's virtually impossible to deliver information in a way that's heard as completely neutral. Because given that, that patients or clients orient to a practitioner as, as the expert in a field, they'll try and make meaning out of whatever it is that a professional says in order to help them make decisions. And then I think the other reason why conversation analysis is so useful is, is again, and picking up on, on things that Ruth said, that because healthcare practitioners are doing this all the time, they develop resources for dealing with interactional difficulties and, and dilemmas, you know, some of which are created by the policies that they're asked to implement, that you can identify and you can explicate. And those can be incredibly useful training resources for, for other practitioners, you know, who, who may be new to that setting or who may not have dealt with those particular issues or, or difficulties before. And I'm sure you've got plenty you might like to add about that, Ruth. Sometimes with my physio kind of background, I sometimes think it's helpful to think uh, in terms of an analogy to how anatomists work. So, you know, all of us know our bodies skin deep, and we could talk about that skin deep aspect, but what's what we don't know, unless we're fortunate enough to study it and so on, is is what's under that skin, the the anatomy, the, and, and it is, it's, it's incredibly beautiful and complex and clever and neat and so on, the way that our bodies work under the skin. And that's, it's the same with interaction. So in a way, conversation analysis, analysis is doing anatomy of, of interaction. It's a really a very useful way to look at it, isn't it? Because I think you get sort of forms to fill out and things like that. And you think it'd be great for if everyone just, you know, could go into a box, you know, and it would be so simple to say that's the outcome, that's, you know, what it should produce or you, you follow this rule and, and, and then that works. And then, but we're, as individuals, as humans, we're so complex, aren't we? We've got our own characters and our own ways of dealing and, and to be intuitive, you know, as mums or dads or whatever, you know, you, you have this intuition that of what is right, but try to articulate why that feels the right thing, I suppose, must be really quite tricky. And the main thing in terms of an outcome for the research that you've done, if you had any ideas of, of how your work might support changes to the way we view and implement patient-centred care, and ultimately, as you've been describing, how it would lead to better health outcomes for patients in the future. I think the most fundamental thing my research does is, is highlight the importance of looking at the actual evidence rather than beginning with a moral position. Because the problem is then that you can become so invested in that moral position that it becomes very difficult to act in the face of contradictory evidence. So in the book, I draw very briefly on some data collected from an, an NHS gender clinic. And I think that's perhaps the clearest contemporary example of, of what happens when moral positions obscure debate. So, you know, what we know is that the CAS review into services provided by the Tavistock Clinic in London has highlighted some serious concerns over practice. 
But what I think we've then seen is that practitioners and policymakers are afraid to engage with those for, for fear of stepping out of, of that moral shelter. So that's a, a kind of much broader thing. Beyond that, in more practical terms, I think firstly, we need to try and rehabilitate medical expertise a bit. So, you know, I think in, in rightly problematizing medical authority, which, you know, which has been at the root of some of the scandals that I've talked about, you know, kind of unchallenged medical authority, allowing cultures to develop that, you know, were, were outrageous and, and, and unhelpful. And we've problematized expertise as well. And so, you know, there's, there's a big difference between who has a right to know stuff, which is how I'd conceptualize expertise, and who has a right to decide what should happen, which is what I'd conceptualize as, as authority. So, you know, I think patient-centered care rightly problematizes that authority, but, but we need to think about how we bring that expertise back in ways that are acceptable to, you know, to contemporary 21st century patients. So, so rather than trying to train professionals to, to do better patient-centered care, whatever that looks like, I think we need to think about how what we're understanding as patient-centered care has problematized that expertise. Alongside that, I think I think we need to lose some of our obsession with individual choice and autonomy and, and this focus on individual consultations and think more about relational autonomy, which which reflects the fact that we don't generally make decisions in a in a vacuum. So I'm absolutely not suggesting that there isn't an important role for patient experience. But I think that rather than scoring how that's been taken into account into a in a specific consultation, you know, and choosing which of the 160 measurement tools that you use to do that, I think we'd be better placed if we think instead about how that experience can be used in co-design of services and, and co-production of healthcare resources so that that patient expertise is, is embedded at, at that stage of, of service provision. And then... Picking up on on things that, that Ruth and I have just been saying about conversation analysis, given that many, if not most, healthcare policies have to be talked into being at the point at which care is delivered, I think we need to advocate for policy to be grounded in a solid understanding of how healthcare interaction works in practice. So, you know, not what people think it does or what it should do. It sounds like this is just the start for you and you've got a lot more coming. So um, maybe you can give us a, just a, a little bit of um, a highlight into or um, an idea of what's next for your research and what you think is, is really important in the next phase. In, in general terms, what I'm going to do is, is carry on trying to use social science methods and, and particularly conversation analysis to, to improve healthcare policy and practice. So at the moment, I'm working on a project looking at how we might better manage distress in, in people living with dementia who've been admitted to, to acute hospital wards. And the end point of that project, as for most of my projects, will be to, to develop a training intervention that's grounded in real-life interaction from the wards. With colleagues, I've also developed a method for improving simulated interaction by, by using conversation analysis to inform it. So... It's really important that we think about how healthcare professionals are trained. And most healthcare professionals are trained at some stage and to some degree through interactions with, with stimulated patients at actors who, who play patients. But there are all sorts of questions over, over authenticity of, of simulated interaction that conversation analysis methods can help to address. And then 
I suppose, given globalization and increased migration worldwide, I'm also really increasingly interested in the use of additional languages by patients in healthcare settings. So if you can't talk about your healthcare concerns in a third language in order to access care, what impact does that have on your consultations, on how your agency gets exercised in, in decision-making and, and so on? So uh, yeah, the, the short answer to your question, I think, is is more of the same, but in different settings. And I think one of the really interesting things about working with this approach is that you're drawn to where you see the issues are arising, you know, r- rather than kind of having this this top-down notion of these are the things that I think are important. My questions and my projects are usually generated by the things that I can see are problematic or difficult or challenging in healthcare interaction. And so where there's a need for, you know, for, for guidance or, or for training for practitioners. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose, you know, like you mentioned earlier in the conversation about COVID, we never know what's next. We never know what the need might be or what, what will arise. So um, I don't know, will there be an opportunity for the two of you to work together again, do you think? I'd like to think so. <laughs> maybe we will write that book, Ruth. And maybe. <laughs> Thank you for listening to our episode on reconsidering patient-centred care. You can find more information about our guests and a transcript of the episode on our website. I'd like to thank my guests for joining me and sharing their knowledge and expertise. A huge thanks also goes to podcast producer Daniel Ridge and the studio This Is Distorted.